And um, we will do this teaching, this study, lecture, I suppose it is. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl, so much for doing that, and thanks for cooking. And Lord, just as we uh, know many of the students uh, of our of our co-disciples are gone tonight for various reasons, Lord. We just pray you'd meet them where they're at and just encourage them to keep pressing on, Lord, and to not waver, not drift away if there's anything like that going on. Um, Lord, to be faithful uh, where that's needed and, and just if some just for some reason are on a break or something, Lord, just refresh them. Lord, just tonight refresh us, Lord, and encourage us as we just entrench ourselves in the truth of who you are, Lord. And I just pray that as we seek you and to know you more, um, that, uh, Lord, we would just have wonderful joy. Uh, we would just be kept in you, Lord. Uh, there'd be power in our meet ministries and our preaching, just like Paul was saying, that uh, a, great, a great way to conquer um, fear of evangelism is to study and to know what you believe. And even as we'll see tonight, the Holy Spirit has a task of guiding us into all truth. And so would you do that here tonight? Guide us into all truth, Lord. And uh, Holy Spirit, as we learn about you, would you just be near and um, come upon us and fill us just with power tonight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, also known as pneumatology, okay? The term pneumatology comes from two Greek words, Pneuma, meaning wind or breath or spirit, uh, used to speak of the Holy Spirit. And logos, meaning word, matter, or thing. So, as pneumatology is used in Christian systematic theology, it refers to the study of the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Generally, this includes topics like personality of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit through Scripture. The Holy Spirit has often been called the forgotten God or the forgotten person of the Trinity. Uh, and that's really what led us to teach a special doctrine uh, study on the Holy Spirit. We <clears throat> taught on God the Father. We taught on God the Son. We taught on the Trinity. And so I was feeling this morning as I was looking over our syllabus, I was kind of like, oh, you know, uh, we covered the Trinity in the, or we covered the Holy Spirit in the Trinity, you know, and with some of our Sunday teachings, and so I just kind of was like, okay, we'll we'll move on to something else, and then reading uh, Moody, which we'll, I'll quote him in just a little bit, but uh, but you just notice sometimes the Holy Spirit kind of gets left out, <laughs> and if you've seen Francis Chan has that book called Forgotten God, and he speaks of the the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our ministries. Uh, there's been Christological disputes, that is, disputes about who Jesus is, and we've learned about those in our Deity of Jesus study. There have been debates on who Jesus is within the church, and that a lot of time has caused uh, the attention to be focused on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, often at the expense or the neglect of the third person. Uh, for example, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, all it has about the Holy Spirit is one line that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and that's it. Uh, the Nicene Creed is even more curt. 
in what it says about the third person of the Trinity. After the long confession in the Nicene Creed about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, that then adds at the tail end and in the Holy Spirit. And that's all. Uh, as you do more study, you see an early church historian named Socrates wrote just after Eusebius uh, includes, he includes in a book a number of the early creeds uh, that were from non-Nicaeans. All right? These were alternatives to the Nicene Creed. And very interesting, they did include extensive statements about the Holy Spirit. Seemed to be that the fact that the focus of attention on the Son made sure uh, at the Nicene Council, they were trying to defend the deity of Jesus. It made sure that Arian heretics were excluded because they didn't think that the Son and the Father were of the same substance or essence. And so in the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit just wasn't the issue. That's why there wasn't much spoken of about him. Um, whereas in some of the other creeds, uh, he has spoken more. Um, perhaps as a result of modern Pentecostal movement and the rise of the charismatic movement, Throughout the world, the Holy Spirit is finally beginning to receive the sort of attention he deserves. Uh, the Pentecostal movements and the charismatic movements. <clears throat> the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was actively taught, and this is uh, a quote from our Moody book, the chapter of the power of the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit in our ministries. And he says, the, Larry Taylor says, the doctor, is it Larry Taylor? Larry Larry Miller, yeah. Steve Miller, yes. I was like, the same guy that has the song, the musician, right? Uh, he writes, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was actively taught in all of D.L. Moody's schools and at his Northfield conferences. In addition, at the conferences, Moody passionately exhorted all the attendees to seek the Spirit's filling in their lives. But he felt the church in general gave too little attention to the Holy Spirit. And more importantly, Moody asserted that if anyone wanted to be effective in ministry, he must receive empowerment from the Spirit. And uh, so that's what kind of led today to, like, uh, to taking the time and really studying the Holy Spirit. And uh, a good, good underlined section there for our learning in ministry I wanted to say that again. Moody asserted that if anyone wanted to be effective in ministry, he must receive empowerment from the Spirit. And the preface of Moody's book titled Secret Power, published in 1881, Moody said the Holy Spirit has been too much overlooked as though it were not practical and the result is lack of power in testimony and in work. So I didn't want to fall guilty of that in our Ministries. Uh, I was listening to a Darren Patrick teaching from an Acts 29 conference this morning. And uh, one of the things he talked about is in all of our big board meetings and elder meetings and things where we're just talking about getting stuff done. And that's good to do. He says, you got to have someone that's the, that's the flag man for prayer. He throws the flag for prayer, like in football. <laughs> you know, we need to pray or we need to seek the Lord more on this. You know, and I was just thinking, you know, it's quick that we can not do that. We need to have someone that's just like, he's our guy to just be like, oh, pray. We need to pray. We need to pray about this. And um, we need the Holy Spirit. We're getting too cocky. We're getting too into it on our own. We need to seek the Lord. We need to cry out for his power. We need to cry out for his presence. We need to cry out for his wisdom. 
Um, the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, there's some faulty views of the Holy Spirit. First of all, in thinking that he is a force, all right? That he's a force, like something from Star Wars, you know? Uh, he is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He's not an impersonal force or an it. And so when we speak about being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, people get scared because they have an incorrect understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit, the personality of the Holy Spirit. And so they often think, I got the Holy Spirit on me, ah, you know. And it's like, he's not, you know, he's not a force. He's not electricity, you know. Uh, he is a person not an it. And so we often correct ourselves and catch ourselves by referring to him as an it. All right. Um, he's a person. He has his own ID and individuality. He has a mind, will, and feeling. He can be grieved. A force is not grieved. Gravity is not grieved. He can be resisted. He convicts us of sin and guides us and empowers us, informs us and instructs us. He can be insulted. You can't insult electricity. <laughs> Maybe you can. He dwells with us, and he will testify of Jesus. So he has job descriptions. In John 16, 7 and 8, uh, Blaine, you want to read that verse? So there's this helper, or maybe your translation would say comforter. He's the, the helper, the comforter, and he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we'll look more at that later on, but that word helper, or King James Version, the comforter, in the Greek it's parakletos, and it means to come alongside. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside. It could be translated advocate or a deputy. Uh, he is Jesus' advocate, or Jesus' presence on the earth. He acts for Jesus in the heart and life of every believer. Jesus tells us before he ascends that it's better that he goes away, because then he'll send the helper. Uh, he will come, and he will be in you and with you. Jesus could only be in one place at one time, but the Holy Spirit could actually dwell inside of us. Sixteen times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is revealed as a person. In A.D. 256 to 326, a man named Arian thought the Holy Spirit was just a force, not God, but a power. Then he went on to say that Jesus wasn't God. He was just the Son of God, like Ginger was talking about. This is known as the Arian's heresy. And one way to know if something is a cult is not if there's a lot of followers that go away to a retreat center somewhere, but who do they say Jesus is? You know, Who do men say that I am? And the way that you answer that will determine where you spend eternity. Jesus, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit, don't mix them up. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has knowledge. He distributes gifts. He has a mind. He loves us. We can insult him. And he leads, guides, and drives. Okay? Uh, that's part of his personality. I like the chapter in Living Water by Chuck Smith where it says personality plus. 
The Holy Spirit has personality plus. Uh, he's the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the Trinity. And as such, he is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. He is referred to as God in the scriptures. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, Lulu. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's uh, referred to by Peter there as God. Um, as being God, he's not the ghost of Jesus, as the old expression, the Holy Ghost, might lead one to mistakenly infer. He's not the spirit or the ghost of Jesus that follows Jesus. He's the third person of the Trinity, again, co-equal with the Father and the Son. Acts 13.2 says, as they ministered to the Lord, this is in Antioch, they serving and worshiping the Lord and they fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Great scripture there of a, an action of the Holy Spirit. He spoke and he spoke something very specifically, separate to me the Holy Spirit. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. John fourteen, fifteen through seventeen, Cheryl. So 24 is just, you know, uh, it was very important as well. Um, and, uh, but 26 tells us that he has these actions that he does, um, teaching and bringing to remembrance these things. Um, some of these are repeated verses that we're actually going to go through uh, quite a few times. Let's read this, John 16. Uh, 7 through 15 passage easy. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. 
Thank you. Um, so these wonderful actions of the Holy Spirit that we saw in the verse that Cheryl read uh, at the end there in 26, he's, he'll teach us things and bring to our remembrance the things that, that Jesus had said. And then as easy read, he's going to guide us into all truth, as I prayed in our introduction tonight. Um, and uh, he'll speak whatever things the Lord tells him, and he'll always point to Jesus, something about the Holy Spirit. William Lane Craig writes, It's very interesting that John actually violates Greek grammar in order to emphasize the personhood of the Holy Spirit. How does he do that? The word spirit in Greek is neuter. Uh, it's to, uh, to pneuma. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is neutral, that he is not a person any more than in German, if you said Dysmeichten, sorry, I don't know German, uh, the girl means that girls are neuter. It is just that in Greek it has a neuter pronoun for the word spirit. But John uses the masculine pronoun for referring back to the Holy Spirit. Instead of saying, when the Spirit comes, it will guide you into all truth, he says, he will guide you. He uses the masculine pronoun even though it has a neuter antecedent, which is actually violating grammar. In order to emphasize what we are talking about here, about a person who is going to be in us, with us, and guiding us. Um, this Romans 8 passage, Jason. So, the Holy Spirit is, uh, there's, uh, you, you might have noticed it, there's a section here where it kind of hops away from the deity aspect and goes back to personality. Um, and so, with the idea coming back to uh, deity here of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is distinct from Father and the Son. He's different. Uh, he's a different person. Uh, Matthew 28:19 shows us this in what's called the baptismal formula. Uh, so some of the attributes of his deity, first of all, eternality, or you might just put eternal. Ginger, do you want to read that Hebrews 9.14 verse? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Uh, he is omniscient. Psalm 139, 4 through 7. Go for it. Part of his omniscience also there in First Corinthians seven or two. Do you want to read that, Barb? Yeah. 
omniscient. The Holy Spirit knows all. Uh, holiness. Romans 1, 4, Paul. After you're done writing. <laughs> so, Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> love. You can make a joke out of anything. You just have to say it the right way. Love. Oh, okay. He is a loving spirit. Romans 5 5, Blainster. Holy Spirit pours out the love of God. The Holy Spirit has a relation to Christ. The Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry of Jesus from beginning to end. It's very interesting to see how intimately connected with the life and ministry of Jesus the person of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus did not begin his ministry until he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit at the time of his baptism. Luke three twenty one through twenty two. Uh, if you go on to the next page, I think there's more to that. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. Duh. Okay. I was noticing something while you were reading. I like that it says that while he was being baptized, Jesus prayed. Like Jesus prayed while he was being baptized. And sometimes we do that at baptisms. I have the person pray. Sometimes I'm like, oh, you're such a baby Christian. You probably don't want to pray. But it's just neat to see Jesus prayed while he was being baptized. He's just a little guy. Uh, then in the next verse, Jesus begins his ministry. So Jesus, in order to carry out the ministry that God had called him to, needed to be anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Jesus' miracles and exorcisms are said to have been performed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew twelve twenty eight. In Acts ten thirty eight, easy. Jason, you got the good long one there, buddy. Good guess.
So Jesus was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Good job. I didn't know if you had it in you. And he attributes his powerful preaching of the good news to the Spirit of God. As he reads from Isaiah 64. The continuance of Jesus' ministry after his death is also attributed to the Holy Spirit in John 16. And why don't you go ahead and read 7 and 13 and 14. So Jesus was, if you will, a charismatic. (laughs) He was a man who depended on and was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry. Interesting. We don't often think of that, do we? If we think in those terms, we can understand how the man Jesus of Nazareth, 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man. Jesus, in his human nature, a better way to put it, needed to pray to fast and to draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God had called him to do. One of the encouraging things about this section is that you see the same way in which we need to relate to the Holy Spirit are ways in which Jesus himself related to the Holy Spirit. If our Lord needed to depend upon the power and the fulfilling and the anointing, filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry, how much more do we need to daily depend upon the Holy Spirit as we walk through this life. So it is encouraging to me, I think, as a Christian, to see that Jesus himself drew upon and depended upon the Holy Spirit in the same way that we need to. Some of the works of the Holy Spirit seen in Scripture are creation. Remember from the deity of Jesus study that Jesus created, right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. We see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Who read last? Is it? Okay, go, Linz. So, creation, divine revelation, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10. Divine revelation from the Holy Spirit, and similarly, inspiration of the Scriptures. Second Peter one twenty and twenty one. Uh, 
the Holy Spirit was part of the conception of Christ. Luke, uh, the Holy Spirit was part of the conception of Christ. There's a little tiny space there. Oh, really? <laughs> Let me see. I had two screens, and I was like, sometimes I would, I have highlights wherever you guys have a blank, and I had two screens, it was right before I came down here, I was like, I was highlighting the wrong page, and like, trying, oops, I'm erasing on the wrong page, so, you're lucky you got that little space, you should be thankful. <laughs> Paul, will you read Luke one thirty and read both of those Luke passages. So we have the the conception process there, the Holy Spirit's involvement there. Uh, Regeneration. The power of the Holy Spirit is manifested in the quickening of souls to spiritual life. If the Holy Spirit, and this is from a Spurgeon sermon, if he were gone, we should relapse into spiritual death and the church would become a morgue. The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary to make everything that we do to be alive. Too much of religion is done as if it were performed by a robot or ground off by machinery. This is, this is Spurgeon. Nowadays, men carry little about the heart and soul. They only look at outward performances. Why, I hear that they have now invented a machine which talks Though surely there was talk enough without this Parisian addition to the band of prattlers. (laughs) We can preach as machines, we can pray as machines, and we can teach Sunday school as machines. Men can give mechanically and come to the Lord's table mechanically. Yes, and we ourselves shall do so unless the Spirit of God is with us. I am quite certain that a church which is devoid of life cannot be the means of life-giving to the dead sinners around it. No, everything acts after its kind, and we must have a living church for a living work. See how important the Holy Spirit is in our ministries? The Holy Spirit baptizes individuals into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Are we back to you, Blaine? The Holy Spirit is a, and I accidentally deleted this one. (laughs) So do you guys have a word? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your salvation. College girl? Oh. Yep, or a seal, and Ephesians speaks of that. Uh, do you want to read that Galatia, uh, Romans 8 passage? Okay. 
um, enablement. Enablement for spiritual living. This is, shows the Holy Spirit's role in sanctifying us, giving us sanctification power. Galatians 5, 16 through 18 and verse 25. Paul says it's going to be walking in the Holy Spirit daily. That day by day walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is going to give you the power to resist the desires and temptations of your flesh and would subvert the desires that would desert, subvert the desires of the Holy Spirit in your life. Romans eight, thirteen through fourteen. So truly, we ignore the person of the Holy Spirit to our own peril. The Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to victorious Christian living. How sad that he's the forgotten God, or the forgotten person of the Trinity. He's the giver of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Another long one for you. He's a giver of gifts. He distributes as he wills. He gives for the purpose of edification of the church or for the profit of all. And when the gifts are used, it's called there in verse 7, a manifestation or an appearance of the Spirit. Uh, fruits of the Spirit. He works fruits of the Spirit in an individual's life. So it's important to note that the fruit of the Spirit is not the ecstatic and the dramatic and the crazy stuff that gives you tingles. Uh, the Mormons get tingles, all right? Witnessing to a Mormon with Nikki, and he's like, can't you feel the Spirit speaking through me to you, you know? And it's like, hey, man, it's like demons, you know? Uh, <laughs> the demons can give the, the sticking up hair, you know, all that stuff. It's the fruit of the Spirit here we see isn't the ecstatic, the dramatic, but it's working out these things uh, the helper, he's the helper, or the comforter. We discussed that already. Um, now, the, moving on to kind of another subject here. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
What you find in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit is not the permanent possession of the Jewish believers who are followers of Yahweh. It isn't as though they had or enjoyed the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives on a daily basis as we do. Rather, over and over again, we find in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come upon people to anoint them for a special purpose to which God had called them. So this was temporary, a special anointing to carry out a specific task. It wasn't the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit with these people. That's why someone like David could pray in the Psalms, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That is a prayer no New Testament Christian could pray because as we will see on this side of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is our permanent possession and indweller. Uh, some of these um, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, uh, just goes through these different accounts of the Holy Spirit filling. And for the sake of time, uh, that you just have them there. Uh, the Numbers passage towards the bottom, we see that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon um, uh, Othniel, um, or Gideon, Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Uh, it's the pattern in the Old Testament. You have the Spirit of the Lord coming upon individuals temporarily to anoint them for that special task God's given them to carry out. Uh, he wasn't the permanent possession of believers in the Old Covenant. It might be one of the reasons why their li the lives of the saint in the Old Testament were often marked by failure and carnality and terrible sin. Uh, they didn't have the Holy Spirit regularly in them to give them a life of righteousness before God. They were more or less on their own because unless God anointed them for that special purpose. Um, a little picture here to show the difference here in the permanent presence of the believer. In the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of the Spirit. And then in Christ, we see that uh, in the New Testament, the believer is the dwelling place. Uh, the location was in Jerusalem of Judea. And then at the time of the book of Acts, it uh, moved to Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, so the temple was the dwelling place of the Spirit. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, where were we? So at the dedication of the temple, the presence of the Holy Spirit came and filled the temple. But with Israel's apostasy and God's judgment upon Israel, the presence of God reluctantly, slowly left the temple and deserted Israel so that Israel was now bereft of God's presence and was ripe for judgment. And we see this in Ezekiel 9 and 11. Yeah, go for it. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, filling the house, and the chariots and the chariots. So, sad, 
sad to read of the departure of the Spirit uh, so that judgment could take place uh, over Judah. Um, In the New Covenant, we have a different dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And then Hebrews 3, 5 through 6. Uh, This next section talks about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, 4 through 6, Paul. Right, so this promise of the Father, this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Baptism means to immerse or saturate or plunge. So we really have a saturation with the Holy Spirit. There's three different baptisms in the New Testament, seven in the whole of Scripture. The Holy Spirit's baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we've read it already where we read that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Later on in the same verse it says, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit baptizing individuals into the element, if you will, of the church. This happens at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the baptizer, And he baptizes the individual Christian into the church. So every Christian is baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the invisible church. Then we have John's baptism, uh, where John or a man does the baptizing with the element of water for the purpose of repentance. So when you hear of John's baptism, it's a baptism of repentance with water. And then we have uh, Jesus' baptism or the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus does the baptizing with the element of the Holy Spirit or with fire. For the purpose of power and boldness. Okay? So three different New Testament baptisms that uh, are spoken of here. Each one distinct on who's baptizing, the element that is baptized with, and different purpose. All four Gospels record John the Baptist speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Blaine, Matthew 3.11 
Okay, so baptized with. So who's who's doing the baptizing with the in the baptism with the Holy Spirit context? Who's baptizing? Jesus. What's the element? The Holy Spirit or fire. Okay, uh, these other passages are very similar. John's is a little bit different. Uh, if you want to read that, Lou. There's a couple different views on when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, okay? Uh, view number one, uh, salvation and baptism with the Holy Spirit are not separate experiences. Uh, some would even say it's at baptism with water time. Uh, there's no distinction between, between baptism of the Spirit and baptism with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in and empowers this individual at the moment of salvation. Okay, uh, As William Lane Craig says, uh, this isn't a subsequent act of grace from God. Rather, this is an initiatory act by which one is placed into the body of Christ. As you look at these examples in Acts 2, 8, 10, and 11, and 19, every single one is an initial experience with the Holy Spirit, not a second experience. According to Craig, I'd say. So anyone who is a regenerate Christian has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you haven't been regenerated. You haven't received the Holy Spirit and are not born again. So every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, So that's uh, a view. And uh, it's probably a view held by some of our elders. It's a non-essential thing. Uh, view number two would be salvation and being baptized with the Spirit are separate experiences that may happen at the same time or at separate times, uh, as one would ask or wait for a continual filling of the Spirit. So a couple different uh, views on that. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the first baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit. It's been known as the key verse of the book of Acts. Within this verse, we have an outline for the whole book. The gospels going forth by these witnesses from Jerusalem up through Judea, Samaria, and the Asia Minor, and up to Europe, the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit, we're really talking about power, okay? Talking about power, dunamis in the Greek is what power is, a dynamic dynamite. It's an achieving power. It's the ability or to be able and to want to do something. It's a much needed power. It causes ordinary people to live extraordinary Lives. It's not radical Christianity. It's normal Book of Acts Christianity. Uh, Peter, we have Peter denying Jesus to a campfire girl. He cusses, he backslides back into his old life. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter's a totally different man. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20. He's been baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He stands up, quotes scripture, and men are cut to the heart 
Some 3,000 people get saved. A few days later, he's used again to heal a lame man, preaches the gospel, and 5,000 people get saved. So normal guys that fail and make mistakes like we do, but are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Spoken of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, the Jews said, These who have turned the world upside down have now come to our city. This is a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Boldness causing these individuals to turn the world upside down. Or in Philippi, it was said of them, These men exceedingly trouble our city. Don't you long for that in our town? These, these people are exceedingly troubling our city with the gospel. Um, those guys are going door to door. I know, the Mormons, right? No, it's not the Mormons. You know, they're going door to door and they're sharing this Jesus guy. Um, and he's changing the city, praise God. Uh, in Acts 5, the religious leaders accused the disciples of filling Jerusalem with this man's doctrine. In Ephesians, Paul prays that God may grant you according, strengthened with might or dunamis in the inner man. If you're going to be victorious, say no to sin, no to the world, no to pressure. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we can be frustrated because we see that we're lacking power, and I believe that's a good time to come to Jesus, to wait on the Lord, to spend time in his presence. As we see in Acts chapter 4, they just get let out of prison again. And they go, and they don't ask that the troubles would be removed and the persecution would be removed, but they worship God, and they cry out for more power, and the whole place is shaken, and they were continually filled. Is how It's the tense in the Greek. It's this continual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. Whose turn is it to read? Okay, go for it. easy. Right. And then Ephesians 1.19 just says uh, that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, there's three different relationships that the Holy Spirit has with people. Uh, Number one, it's para in the Greek, P-A-R-A, and it means with. He's with you. Uh, He convicts the sinner and leads them to salvation. We've, um, as we read in John 14, 17, uh, if someone wants to read that, I guess that's Jason. Okay, so uh, first of all, he dwells with you. And then the next one we're going to see in just a minute is that he's in you. But I always like to use the illustration of um, like a cup of water all right, or a glass of water. And at this first stage of the para, the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you. And as we've read like three times already tonight in John 16 18, when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So the Holy Spirit comes, he's alongside of these individuals convicting them, and it's as if you had a, an empty glass, all right? And next to the glass, you had the, the source of water, all right? And, uh, and there, he's alongside this empty glass. 
But then we see another Greek word in the New Testament is en, E-N. He'll be in you. All right? He comes inside you the moment you believe. He seals you for salvation. And it's at this point, it's like the water filling the cup, sealing the cup. And if you, you know, remember science class back in high school or middle school, you know that the top of the water has the meniscus. It's like it's seal. It's its own seal. And uh, interesting, you can actually overfill the cup just a little bit, and it won't spill because there's a sealing of the water there. And uh, it's just a good illustration of the Holy Spirit comes in the individual. It was at this point that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he breathed on the disciples in John chapter 20 and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I personally believe that when he told them to receive the Holy Spirit, that they received the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit came into them. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says, now go wait for something else. Wait for something else. What is that something else? It's the third work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, or relationship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the epi, E-P-I, and this word means upon you. Okay, This is a work different than that of salvation where the Holy Spirit gushes forth like living water upon your life, giving you power to be witnesses and gifts and power to use those gifts to glorify God and to edify the body of Christ. Uh, it's as if not, no longer you know, do you have a pitcher next to this glass of full water. It's like you stick the garden hose into the glass now and just turn it on and just let it continually fill and bubble up over uh, as John seven thirty seven through 39 prophesied. Is that you easy? Sorry, I'm like losing who was reading. Oh, sorry. So we see that there's a power, there's like this extra power that's just going to be torrenting out of the hearts of believers. Rivers of living water, just gushing and flowing forth out of the hearts of the Christian. And I believe we see that come on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 32, apparently, as my notes say. I just really want to make sure you, you know that it's in verse 32. I guess we'll go through 33 too. So as Peter is preaching the gospel, explaining what had happened as everyone is speaking in tongues and it just causes a commotion, he says this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, flowing out of hearts, flowing upon uh, just this continual epi. And uh, we see that in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, epi. It's the word upon, epi, upon you. Remember what Jesus said when he read from Isaiah 64? He said, the Holy Spirit is upon me. He's anointed me. So it's an anointing of the Holy Spirit for power. And we read of it happening in Acts 2, 1 through 4.
Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, and just so you know, the, the tense there, that word filled, it's continually filled. It's the, a translation of it because of the tense that it's in in the Greek. Um, we read Acts 2.33 already. Um, Acts 11 is another account of um, the Gentiles having the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Acts 11.15. So we see the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon believers while the gospel is still being preached. All right. So I, I don't believe that God's in a box as to when the Holy Spirit moves in our midst and anoints us with power. Whether you believe that the moment you're saved, you're filled with the you know baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's interesting. Even one guy I was reading today who believes in that it's not a different work. It's when you're saved, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. He then goes on to distinguish Let's just be real. You can see in Christians' lives, they're Christians, but they don't have any power. And so he calls it the fullness of the Spirit. It's like, okay, well, we just, you know, we long for power, right? We want the fullness of the Spirit, okay? And we see that in different times in the book of Acts, uh, in, as in the Acts 10 case, um, Peter's still preaching the gospel there to Cornelius and his household. And while he's preaching the gospel, these people evidently believe in their heart while he's preaching, and then they... Uh, are baptized with the Holy Spirit. So different accounts as you read the book of Acts. Um, power, dynamite, dunamis. As we see in Acts eleven seventeen and two thirty eight, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift, and it's a gift that keeps on giving gifts. <laughs> but it's for the purpose of being witnesses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Yes, gifts come and, and seem to be enhanced by those times of baptism with the Spirit. They seem to be used in power, but Jesus says, uh, you will be witnesses of me. And the word witness in the Greek is the word marturo. It means a martyr. Uh, so you will receive power to be a martyr, and you will testify of me. Um, a witness is testifying of Jesus even to the point of death. A witness is to count his or her life as already dead. It's been said, dying for Jesus doesn't make you a martyr. It just shows who the real martyrs are. Who already are martyrs in their everyday living. Um, I love the story of, as I've read the book and seen the movie, <laughs> um, as you read uh, about Band of Brothers, there was a private in the 101st Airborne during World War II named Albert Blythe. He was dropped into France on D-Day, but he was so terrified in the midst of the battle that he hid for days in ditches, not fighting, just trying to, to not be noticed and to stay alive. Uh, later on, he found his unit and uh, was able to muster the strength to be part of the battle to take the little town of Carentan, 
And he was so terrified. In the midst of the battle, he went blind. Uh, it's uh, hysterical blindness was the diagnosis. And so the, sto- the story is told of him being on patrol one night, hiding in a foxhole when a big, strong, brave lieutenant, Ronald Spears, walked up to Blythe. Blythe asked, Blythe asked the lieutenant how he was so brave and how he put the fear away. Lieutenant Spears then said to Blythe, You know what your problem is? You think there's still hope. You need to realize that you are already dead. And the moment you realize that, you will be able to function the way a true soldier functions. Blythe went on to be a very brave soldier. One day after volunteering for a recon mission so that his friends wouldn't have to go, he was shot in the neck by a German sniper. But he later went on to heal up and go on to fight in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And so it's a good message for us to realize we're already dead. All right? If we try to live for something, we gain the world but lose our soul. And, uh, and the Lord would just have us know, man, I've been crucified with Christ. Now the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. So Paul says, I die daily. But he was a martyr even before he was beheaded. The opposite or the antonym of power is feebleness and infirmity and disease. Are we going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit for power, dynamite power, or are we going to be the opposite, Christians who are feeble, sick, full of disease? Vance Havner wrote, we will move this world not by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by combustion within of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. When Jesus was baptized before his earthly ministry, he was baptized with water, then with the Holy Spirit. Before his public ministry, this serves as an example to us, then the disciples were to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How much more do we need to wait for him before going into our ministry? Moving right along. How do I become baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, perhaps it happens at the moment of salvation. We also seem to see that wherever there's waiting on the Lord, there's this continual filling that takes place. It's not so much getting, getting a hold of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit getting a hold of you, a surrendering of your life to the Lord. The Lord wants us to be empowered more than we want to be empowered. The Lord knows how to, get, to give good gifts. We'll close with that scripture in just a minute. But many people think, hey, if I get baptized with the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to speak out in tongues uncontrollably. That's a lie from the enemy. Jesus is the one who baptizes. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And he distributes the gifts as he wills. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we have this dynamite power upon us, we abound in hope. And in the same chapter, 15, verses 18 through 19, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
This speaks of Paul preaching in a circuit. And man, don't you just long to look around our town and just see Mitchell and Post and, you know, Polina and Madras and just this circuit around us that needs to hear the gospel. Anything Paul achieved, this is uh, Wolvert and Zuck writes, anything Paul achieved that was worthy of praise had God's grace as its source, Jesus Christ as its motivation and goal, and the Holy Spirit as its energy. Spurgeon writes, to keep the church happy and holy within herself, there must be a manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, that the church may invade the territories of the enemy and may conquer the world for Christ, but she must be clothed with the same sacred energy. We may, then, go further and say that the power of the church for external work will be proportionate to the power which dwells within her. Gauge the energy of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers, and you may fairly calculate their influence upon unbelievers. Only let the church be illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and she will reflect the light and become to onlookers fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. I believe it's from the same sermon that Spurgeon says, Unless the church is herself rich in the things of God and strong with divine energy, she will generally cease to be aggressive and will content herself with going on with the regular routine of Christian work, crying, peace, peace, where peace should not be. She will not dare to defy the world or to send forth her legions to conquer its provinces for Christ when her own condition is pitiably weak. So, I like what Alistair Begg says when he speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, Whatever it is, I need it. Whenever it happens, I want it. And I think that the tragedy is, whether you believe, whenever you believe that it happens, I think there's people that just say, they're they're just afraid of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they don't want it. They don't want the Holy Spirit. They don't want His power upon them. No, I've got this. And I think that's a detriment. And I think a lot of the warnings that we read from Spurgeon and Moody and William Lane Craig, who's just an incredible apologist, you know, I think it's just beautiful to say, you know what? It seems that the tense in the New Testament is this continual filling. And so if you rely on some experience that you had, you know, 10 years ago or more or less or whatever, and you haven't just had that continual filling from the Holy Spirit for power, examine your life. Is there power? Is there power in your ministry? Is there power in your service? Is there power in your discipleship? Uh, Man, if it seems there's not, I think it's a beneficial thing to just come to the feet of Jesus and to ask him to baptize you and pour out his spirit upon you. Luke 11, 11 says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, I love Luke's because it actually says it this way, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Another uh, gospel says, give gifts or give good gifts. And I like this translation, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So why don't we just pray tonight just for... A fresh filling for that continual filling. Those of us that are weary, those of us that are feeling 
powerless. Let's come to the source, the source of power. Jesus, in our humble school of ministry tonight, we come just to study you and to have the Holy Spirit speak, and he's testified of you tonight. And we just thank you for the role of the Holy Spirit, and, and each person of the Trinity has their role, and, and he seems to have a role that makes much of the Son of God. And uh, it's just somewhat of a mystery to us, Lord, but we see that he is a person. We see that he is uh, the source of power. And uh, Lord, just we pray that you would just pour out that power upon us tonight that you would saturate us and immerse us, Lord. Lord, just thank you for the power that we do see in our church, but we would cry out for more, Lord. Not that we do weird things, but, Lord, that we would be bold to share the gospel, that we would uh, have effective working in our midst, and uh, that you would get the glory, Lord. We come to just plug ourselves in and tap into the source of energy tonight. And we would pray that for our church, Lord. I'm sure there's faces that come to mind that that have made a proclamation of Christ, yet it seems there's no power. Uh, And Lord, we would just ask that you would do a work of your spirit in our church this April and just pouring yourself out, Lord, as we would come to fast uh, in a couple weeks and as we would be intentional in our evangelism and uh, just inviting people to hear of the resurrected Jesus Uh, Lord, as we just continue to make disciples and be disciples and mortify sin, and we just see the Holy Spirit's role in sanctifying us out of this world and and closer to the image of Jesus. Do that in power in us, Lord. Lord, we just recognize just the different views and the tension there, uh, as is with every doctrine (laughs) that we study. And so, Lord, we just don't want to be unduly dogmatic uh, where that's not needed. And uh, just love the phrase of Alistair Begg, Lord, just whatever it is, we need it. Whenever it happens, we want it, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just do a book of Acts type work in us in Prineville. We know that we're weak and we know that we've got just stuff that um, could hinder that. We just pray you'd purge those things out of us. Many of us are in just similar places to Peter, just feel super weak and denying Jesus and just back to the old life of fishing again. But Lord, when he saw the resurrected Jesus, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, when he received the Holy Spirit, and then when he was anointed and baptized with the Spirit, there was a boldness, just a complete change in that person. And would you do that in us, Lord, for your glory, for your fame. pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.